You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. My life passion is to probe existence. I have relied on science and philosophy, but yet I cannot ignore the possible existence of God and its staggering implications. My way of thinking about God has been informed by philosophy of religion, asking big questions about what God may be like if any such supreme being exists at all. Sectarian doctrines have not been my interest, the cacophonous claims of various religions, but to consider the possibility that God may be real and to explore how humans rationalize their belief in God, I confront the core claim of Christianity. Jesus is God. Let that sink in. Not like God, not representing God, but literally is God. One need not be a Christian or even a theist to appreciate the arguments. Is Jesus God? Jesus as God? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my philosophical inquiry. Jesus as God. I feel an instinctive aversion do more to the banality of the phrase than to any consideration of its meaning and import. I can take two approaches to Jesus as God. The first is as a skeptic, my natural tendency, critiquing with well-known arguments the existence of God and criticizing even more so that a human could literally be God. The second approach would be to imagine myself as a Christian philosopher get from the inside a sense of beliefs and their rationale. As for the first, I've been there, done that. As for the second, I'm game. I go to Scotland, St. Andrews University, the Logos Institute, a leading center for philosophical and analytic theology. I begin with a contemporary systematic theologian, the Emeritus Professor of Divinity at Cambridge and Honorary Professor at St. Andrews, Sarah Cookley. Sarah, I want to know if there's a God, and the way I traditionally have done it is I like to look at cosmology. Christian religion would say, you know, that, that's nice, but if you really want to know God, you have to look at Jesus. What does it mean to say that Jesus is God, and how can we know God by knowing this human being, Jesus? Actually, the Christian tradition doesn't say that Jesus is God. The Christian tradition says, technically, that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, became man as Jesus, or assumed human nature as Jesus. So there's not a straightforward identification of Jesus as God without remainder. Nor does it say, by the same token, that God turned into Jesus in the Incarnation. So getting one's head wrapped around that is one of the hardest things, I think, for contemporary Christians. It involves actually some considerable analytic sophistication about exactly what words have to be used not to err on one side of the other. Mm. 
What, what, are, what are the kinds of errors that you can do? Well, if you make a simple identification of Jesus, the human who walked around in Nazareth and so on, with God, then you suggest that sort of God has transmogrified into Jesus and no one is sustaining the cosmos while <laughs> Jesus is doing whatever he's doing. That's one mistake. Or another mistake is that Jesus was a, an exceptionally fine, perfect person mm. <laughs> who was, as it were, specially under the guidance of God. Mm. You've come up with an idea that we should maybe accept what seems to be paradoxes or inconsistencies and not try to artificially get rid of them and, and kind of appreciate them in order to understand. I mean, one of the difficulties of explicating the second person of the Trinity took flesh and became man is that you're dealing with a, an event there which is by definition unique. And so it's extremely hard to explicate it without playing a mystery card sooner or later. But that in itself is not necessarily a sign of incoherence. I also don't think you can prove on evidential grounds that the Jesus of the Gospels is evidentially the Son of God. I think something else has to come in, something that is responsive to the individual. Because there's a great longing, I think, for a kind of uh, what's called internalist evidentialism that would prove once and for all whether this is an acceptable doctrinal proposition. It's not like you can pick up your gospels and just read straight off from the stories of the parables or whatever. Uh, back into the nature of God. It's precisely because of this metaphysical apparatus of incarnational claims that there's a need first to decide whether you are signing on to the idea that it is possible that God could have incarnated in this way. And there are several things that could nudge you in that direction, but ultimately this is going to be a spiritual response. When the second person of the Trinity became or somehow was in Jesus, mm. were there only two left? No, there was not only short, two left. Short, short. <laughs> not only the two second, left. You see, that this is the crucial logical form of this semantics. So the second person of the Trinity didn't turn into Jesus, nor did the second person of the Trinity go off duty and lose all his characteristics and transmogrify into Jesus, nor did the second person of the Trinity just sort of take Jesus to use as a fellow traveler. This is where it becomes very mind-bending. The person of Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. There wasn't another person that he took on. There was a human nature that he took on. Sarah carefully delimits what is meant by Jesus as God, a kind of distorting shorthand, she says, for an apparently more complex structure, a trinity of three persons that is somehow one God, and the remarkable claim that the second member of this triune God came into some kind of mind meld with the first century young adult we know as Jesus. That's some heavy baggage to take on board. Sarah acknowledges playing a mystery card. To me, the Jesus as God claim contrasts sharply with our vast cosmos, my usual starting point for probing existence. I pose the Jesus as God question to an expert on Jesus, the professor of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Andrews, N.T. Tom Wright. 
the question is, what does the word God mean? And I think if you start by saying, here is this extraordinary universe which we live in, which I exult in, actually, when I start at the other end and say, something extraordinary happened in the first century in Palestine, and it was this man, Jesus, and pretty soon his followers were saying, my Lord and my God, what did they think they meant? Were they aware of the complexity of, of the world? I think actually they were. And they were meaning by God something which relates to the entire Hebrew Bible tradition, which is a very mysterious picture of a God who made the world and the same God who calls Israel to be his people. What is the significance of this one new human being being God? Well, the phrase Jesus being God, you have to be careful because, of course, from the very beginning, Christians haven't just said Jesus is God. They do say that, but then they qualify because Jesus is not, as it were, God without remainder, which is why you get the beginnings of a Trinitarian theology in the New Testament itself. And it's why they use this phrase, Son of God, which is ambiguous mm. because it also means Messiah, goes back to the Psalms. But what we see in the New Testament is this convergence of messianic language with then, oh my goodness, there's something more going on language. But here's the thing. Many Jews in the Second Temple period seem to have believed in God having a story that God had come to dwell in Jerusalem on Mount Zion in the temple, and then at the time of the exile, he'd disappeared. And then the, the prophets say he'll come back. Even after the exile, after they've rebuilt the temple, Malachi says that, Zechariah, nobody ever says he has come back. And the New Testament picks up precisely those prophecies to say this is the story of God and here's how God came back. So that nobody was looking for that, nobody was expecting it, but it seems as though that is the way that they're construing this whole question of who is Jesus? Well, you know that Israel's God said he would come back. Well, could it be, is it thinkable, etc.? Dig deeper. If that's there, then what? If that's there, then the first followers of Jesus are faced with quite a conundrum. How you can talk meaningfully about God and Jesus in the same breath. And I think one of the things you see very early on in the Christian movement is poetry. Because with poetry, you can do what straight prose finds it difficult to do. With poetry, you can do in a measure what music does, which is say three or four or five things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so some of the very earliest attempts to express this in the New Testament are really poems in which they're telling the story of God and telling the story of Jesus and holding them together as a poem does in a kind of a shimmering unity and then saying, now, actually this poem is a prayer and if you want to understand it, you'll have to start praying it. Can you be God and then the Son of God at the same time? What you see precisely in John's prologue is that he starts off with the Logos, but then by the end of the prologue, he is using Son of God language. And it's interesting because in the rest of the book, he doesn't use Logos language, he uses Father-Son language. Mm. And it's as though he says, here is the lens, and you use this lens of the Logos, and now I'm going to talk about the Father and the Son, but I want you to remember that this is about the word through which all things were created. And so he is fusing them together. Tom begins with those much-recounted first-century events, fusing two big ideas. Jesus as the Logos, the Word, the Creator of all, and Jesus as the Son of God. The two ideas, though obviously big, are not obviously coherent. God the Creator and God the Son of God as the same being? So how did these not obviously coherent ideas become sacred doctrine? I ask a pioneer of analytic theology, Oliver Crisp. 
Oliver, if there is a God, and if that God created all that we know, it's just a bizarre, indeed mm. perhaps absurd, mm. to think that that God became a human being in some real sense, not a me metaphorical sense. I think you're absolutely right that it's the kind of scandal at the heart of the Christian message. The way to think about that is, has been established for us going back centuries into the life of the early church, where very early on Christ seems to have been included in the worship of the church as somehow part of the divine identity. And what happens after that is, uh, as Christians reflect further, is that they begin to think more about how to differentiate the Father from the Son, Jesus, and this other thing, the Holy Spirit, until eventually, a few centuries later, you have the doctrine of the Trinity, that you have one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, who Christ is is right at the heart of that. But you have this kind of backing into the doctrine of the Trinity from what what is thought about Christ and how he can be both human and divine at one at the same time. I mean, it seems like a big jump from Son of God, which seems to be the, uh, the overt description, uh, to literally God. It is a big jump. It seems like something about Christ's message, what it is he communicates to his early disciples, leads them very quickly to think this person is more than another human being, this person is somehow divine. And much of the early Christian debate about this is about trying to figure out what's the wrong view and what's the right view and how to articulate that. What are some of the wrong views? I like, I like those. So one wrong view is to say uh, something like what's called polynarianism, and here Christ has a human body, but the place of the human mind is taken by God. So he's not completely human. He's like a kind of human zombie with a <laughs> divine mind in there. And so uh, the early church was trying to figure out, are these views right? They can't be right if what we've got here is someone who's fully God, really completely God, but also fully and completely human. We don't want someone who's just partly human. We don't want something like a, a, a divine zombie. We want someone who's both fully human and fully divine at one and the same time. But how is it possible to be fully human and fully divine at the same time? Fully sure seems to amp up the apparent contradiction. Must faith now make its grand entrance? I asked a devout philosopher of religion in the Catholic tradition, Eleanor Stump. Well, I think that we have a help here in the old patristic formulations. Christ is one person with two natures. And the idea behind this formula is God in himself is incorporeal, immutable, eternal, perfect, loving, joyful, and uh, we're not like that. And the problem with us is that we're broken. And in our trouble, we refuse help. So in those circumstances, God had an idea. Why don't I join them and see if joining them will encourage them to come to me? What's the message of Jesus? Come to me and I will be able to help. So for the sake of joining us, what was he gonna do? Well, it's not possible for a thing that's perfect to cease being powerful or cease being all-knowing, but he could add on another nature. So he adds on a human mind, he adds on a human body, and now he can operate in two radically different ways. He can operate either through the divine nature, which is his own, or he can operate through this added-on human nature. So my question is, in terms of the divine nature and the human nature, 
is it shifting one to the other uh, where each one is on, totally on and totally off? Or is there some kind of a more complex uh, blurring or a melding of the two? Sometimes Christ operates in his divine nature. Sometimes Christ operates in his human nature. Or sometimes he operates in both of them together. What, what does both together mean then? Well, it, it means that he's using both natures at the same time to get the job done. So it's not... Isn't that a blending? No, that's not a blending. Think, think of it as bad science fiction. The alien invades the human mind. The alien's mind is much superior to the human mind. But for the sake of conquering Earth, the alien sometimes just operates through the human mind. And when the alien operates just through the human mind, there's a lot the alien doesn't know about the alien's own world and mm. so on. If you've got two minds, you can operate in one or the other or both of them. On the Christian, God cannot suffer. But it is true that God suffers because the person who is crucified is a divine person. So in reality, God did suffer or didn't suffer? God does suffer. In reality, God does suffer, not in God's divine nature, but in God's human nature, which is God's nature also. Two natures, two minds, the human blurring the divine. But which nature or mind has control? How or who or what decides? Even so, does two minds even make explanatory progress? Are there other explanations? I ask a philosopher of religion at Baylor, an expert on Kierkegaard, C. Stephen Evans. There are a number of different attempts to make sense of the idea that Jesus could be both human and divine. And of course, it does seem paradoxical. And, and uh, Soren Kierkegaard says it is a paradox. He just thinks we should accept it as mystery. But lots of people have tried to sort of say, well, maybe we can make some sense of it, at least to the degree that we can show it's not absolutely contradictory. So my own view is that is it starts from the idea of kenosis, which is Greek for emptying. Uh, and there's a passage in one of Paul's letters where Paul says that Christ, even though he was equal with God in the form of God, didn't sort of cling to that, but he emptied himself and became like a servant uh, and finally went to death. And then this is, and then God has rewarded him by exalting him. So canonic Christology takes seriously this idea of kenosis. And, emptying. And, uh, yeah, self-emptying. And so people say, how can a, a human being who's born in a particular place and time and certainly doesn't look all powerful, you know, okay. how could he possibly have all those divine qualities? Well, Jesus has a divine mind and a human mind, but he, the human mind is not aware of the divine mind. The divine mind is aware of the human mind. There's sort of a two minds view. And I think that's a coherent possible way of making sense of the incarnation or, or of Jesus as God. But I prefer to take more seriously the idea of kenosis. And, and it requires the idea that God could limit himself. One of the things an all-powerful being could do is to limit his power. <laughs> now, there, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's an old paradox in philosophical theory called the paradox of the stone. Could God create a stone so big he couldn't lift, right. <laughs> right? But there's a serious problem there because you might think that if God cannot limit himself, that there are things I can do he can't do. <laughs> <laughs> I think self-limitation is in fact a perfection. 
and that a God who couldn't limit himself wouldn't be able to relate to human beings as well as a God who can limit himself. For example, the idea of covenant. But covenant is involved the idea of a promise. But a promise is a kind of limitation. You know, if I, if I make you a promise, I'm kind of binding myself. I'm limiting myself. And I think we have a God who can make promises, a God who can limit himself. I'm going to put aside omnipotence and omniscience and all these sort of omni-properties. And I'm going to fully live as a human being, meaning that I don't know things. <laughs> I'm not omniscient. Uh, I, I get tired. I get unhappy. Uh, I cry perhaps sometimes because my friend has died. So I think canonic Christology to me is very attractive because it means God has fully entered into the human condition. The, the really important thing is that uh, Jesus can be God because that's who he is. And he shows us God's essential nature, which is love, by his willingness to put aside these other properties and, and suffer for us and with us. What I get about canonic Christology, God radically emptying God's own self, is that it offers a Christologically consistent alternative to the blur of two minds. It also aligns with a God becoming human to suffer with us and to save us, assuming, of course, one buys into the whole Christian worldview. I love consistency. But I'd be shocked if my sense of consistency made much impact on what that God were like if there were a God. But whether Jesus had two minds fully, or whether God emptied God's own self of the divine, bottom line, what was Jesus in Christian philosophy? What does it mean to avow that Jesus is God? I ask an expert on contemporary Christian doctrine, the Regis Professor of Divinity at the University of Cambridge, Ian McFarland. What Christians want to say is to look at Jesus is to come up with the fundamental clue or understanding of what it is that drives and grounds and brings to a fruition the universe as we know it. That's what it means to say Jesus is God. And I think what's important about that uh, approach is that rather than beginning with a notion of God in the abstract, that then becomes a model over against which we try to match up Jesus and see if Jesus meets the criteria for this God. The gambit that Christians want to ask people to take is to say, this person's life is the measure for whatever we want to say about God. So we don't begin with a notion of God and then see how Jesus fits it. Rather, we begin with Jesus and allow that to discipline, define, and shape our understanding of who God is. So that the first thing that comes from that, of course, is that the God whom we know in Jesus is the God of Israel. It's a God who has a history with a people, and Jesus is the culmination of that insofar as no longer now simply living, as it were, above the people and guarding them. God now binds God's own life to this people and through this people, through one human family, the whole human family. It would sound like you're saying that my approach in life has been exactly backwards and exactly wrong because I would start with, is there a God? Then what are those characteristics of God? And then does Jesus qualify for that? There's a distinction between the logic of belief and the logic of coming to believe. I'm sure most people who become Christians already have an idea of God and somehow futz around with that in relationship to Jesus, and that's perfectly fine. But I think in terms of the logic of belief itself, the logic of the faith, yes, it is backwards. I think it is important that one begins with Jesus because it means that 
the kinds of attributes that one might be tempted to begin with in talking about God abstractly, if I might put it that way, attributes like omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, and so forth, while certainly important parts of Christian confession are not where we start. We begin with the reality of the one who comes among us and gives his life for us, and that's what leads us to those broader so-called metaphysical attributes. The Christian claim is astonishing. Jesus, a human being who died in his 30s, is God literally God, literally the supreme being who created the universe. Then come the complexities. How could an all-powerful, all-knowing, infinite God become human, become subject to human limitations in power, knowledge, time, and space? What's more, that confounding triune God, the second person of which, as the Christian doctrine developed, is the God person who incarnated as Jesus. To me, whether the incarnation meant Jesus had two minds, one divine and one human, or more a human mind because God emptied God's self, doesn't much matter. Each brings a kind of coherence, but no justification and certainly no proof. But proof is not the point. The point is faith if one believes Jesus is God. Or if one does not believe, Jesus as God provides a tour of human obsession and ingenuity. The Christian ideal, I'm told, is to start knowing God by first knowing Jesus. Personally, I stick starting with the cosmos. And even if I could get to God, from there to where, who knows? To start with Jesus is not my gift. I may have it backwards, but that's okay. I don't like mystery cards to get closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.